Stretching beneath the vast central Queensland plains, from cane to sapphires and cattle country, snakes the rich coal seams that are the livelihood of hundreds of small communities. 4RFM are on a quest to unearth, not coal, but the untold stories of the coalfields. Join us, Brianna and Elena, each month as we travel through towns, pubs and waterholes to seek out mysteries, ghosts, UFOs and strange phenomena. You're listening to 4RFM, untold stories of the coalfields. Welcome back to Untold Stories of the Coalfields. Today's episode is called Traditional Lands. This episode, we talk to Graham Budby, a Baradabana representative. Baradabana are the local First Nations people who lived in the Moranbah area. So when we did our Nebo podcast, we went over to the museum and we got this really interesting book called Behold Nebo, A History of the Nebo Shire by George Mays. And it's got a whole chapter on the Aboriginals of the Nebo district and a lot of information on the Baradabana people in it. And it's just so interesting. I learned that there was really no tribal area it depended on how many people the each tribe had at the time as to where their boundaries kind of expanded to or got smaller that's Um, really cool that they can just expand and yeah and that each tribe accepted that they were like oh you know the weary people have got bigger so they can have across the river and then you know once if they got smaller then it kind of contracted and it talks about like especially rainforesty areas or you know fertile rich areas the the tribal boundaries are really quite small whereas out here the tribal boundaries were obviously heaps bigger because you had to go further to get food and huh. and hunt that's very cool yeah and what are the other aboriginal tribes in our area so there were i probably can't say them properly jenga weary bana barada and which was in the north. And in this book, it has a map of the Nebo Shire and it shows you all those sections of kind of a loose area of where they originally lived. And at the time, as Graham tells us, a lot of the information that we have is from like Ludwig. Ludwig? <laughs> Just like Ludwig Leichhardt's uh, diaries. And this book does talk a lot about that as well. But there was originally, uh, on average, about 500 people in each tribe at the time that Leichhardt kind of came through. Well, what about our um, the school, the high school sports teams? Are they named after local Aboriginal no, tribes? I guess they are. Jambina and what are they? Jambina, Wangan. I'll have to look it up. Yep, Aboriginal tribes of Australia. Are they local tribes of Australia? Like local, sorry, of like here? Um, Jambina. Why can I not remember? Is there only one more? Two more. One of them starts with B, doesn't it? Barada? No. (laughs) Is it? I don't know. Oh, you could do that. <laughs> hey, Leah, how are you going? It's Elena Earl here calling from the 4RFM radio. I am just ringing. I cannot remember the names of all the sports teams. Can you give me the names of the sports teams there? Yep. Curlong. That's the one. Green. Yep. 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 Oh, Barada, we were right. Awesome. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, see ya. What was the other one? Curlong. How did I, how did I never piece together the Barada was... Barada. <laughs> <Neither did> I. <laughs> I feel like such a fool. Curlong. 
Okay, so the official <laughs> Moranbar High School uh, houses are Barada, obviously, which is yellow, and I can't believe we never made that connection before. I can't before. believe it either. <laughs> I went to that school my whole high school. <laughs> was it always these names? Yeah, as far as I remember. Oh, there you go. I only kind of remember the colours, not so much names. Curlong, which is green, Wangan, which is red, that's our team, and Jambina, which is blue. What, what are your kids? Green. So they're cool. That's and you I couldn't remember the name of. <laughs> we did have to ring the high school. Our <laughs> <laughs> see ours when we grew up in Capella, they were named after settlers, and they've since changed them to Aboriginal. Yes. Yeah. So they were Scott, um, MacArthur, and Roper, and yeah, now they've they've changed them, which is fair enough. Well, when I went to Pioneer High for a short amount of time, they uh, the sport colours in there were the islands, so Keswick ah. and yeah. So it's different every school. Yeah, it is. So also in this book, it says the probable demise of the Nebo Aboriginals believed to be, there's not much evidence, but 80% perished or fled in the first 10 years after the settlers arrived. And Graham does talk to us a lot about why, you know, that happened. A lot of them integrated into the stations, a lot of the remaining ones, and, and got employment and then went on to be stockmen for the rest of their lives, really. It is really cool. He was very interesting to talk to. And we're just going to let him take the lead on this one. We kind of step out and let him tell his story while we're still there. But it's mostly mostly all you, Graham, if you're listening. So he's going to share all his stories. And, yeah, I did note if anyone wants to turn this into a really fun drinking game, every time I say wow. I do say wow a lot. <laughs> oh, my God, it's <laughs> terrible. But, yeah, so keep an ear out. Uh, my name's Grant Budby, I'm a Baradabana descendant, born in Mackay, and I'm the treasurer on our Baradabana Aboriginal Corporation. Basically our land covers Lake Elphinstown in the north down to Middlemount Mine in the south which runs along the Peak Range in the west all the way back across to Lotus Creek up the Connors Range and then back to just under Nebo and back to Lake Elphinstown. Wow. It's a huge area. It yeah. is huge. And yeah. so what's your connection? So where... Um, basically our families grew up around Saltbush Park Station which is on the eastern side and the Burton area, Burton Downs. And Homevale, my grandfather worked on Homevale Station, um, which is now a national park. Um, but yeah, my father worked on Burton Burton Station with the shores. And mm. how many people form the Baradabana? There we, um, we have registered members, we have about 550. But with kids, including kids, we're looking at about 1,000 people all over Australia. Who's the oldest or, or what's the... Uh, I think... Maybe either the 80s or 90s would be our oldest. Yep. Um, oldest elders. That's good. Yeah. And I'm sure you guys spend a lot of time trying to get their stories. <laughs> yes, we are. We're trying to. But, you know, you, you need someone there that they trust and they can open up to. That's the hardest part is finding that person that they'll actually talk to. Yeah. And not really thinking, oh, there's a microphone now. I won't talk. Just letting them talk and getting, to, getting them actually to talk is the hardest part. 
Well, that's why we're very thankful to have you with us. Because like you, you were saying off air, that you think it's important to get these stories recorded or get them down so that they can be passed on. Yeah, and that's, that's our tradition, like passing down our stories from generation to generation. And I think now with the digital age, it's a lot easier to record and then let people listen rather than sitting down, like the old days where they used to sit down inside the fire and tell their stories. Like, but nowadays we can't really have a fire inside, can we? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you live in Tasmania or somewhere <laughs> where it's cold, but <laughs> I'm not up here in Moranbah. No, but yeah, stories are important. And you do have a, a bunch, which is amazing. And this is only touching the edges of what you, what you know and what you can tell us, which yeah. is amazing. Just our area, Moranbah, we're on the Grosvenor. Now, I do understand that's got some special importance. Yeah, the Grosvenor River, well, the Grosvenor Creek actually has um, native wells in it, but because of the mining and the sand has covered up all the mound, the native wells, in, basically in the Isaacs and Grosvenor Creek. Wow. Um, okay. Yeah, there's a lot of native wells along the Isaac River, in the Isaac River, and all the tributaries that run into it. Or the major ones. So, yep. um, due to mining water not moving, they've been covered up. And so, how do you find the history of our landscape, like from around here? That's just from. That's from that one. That's basically from Ludwig Leichhardt's diaries. Okay. Cool. Um, if you do a, have a look on look up Ludwig Leichhardt, it's got his, all his diaries on there where he travelled from, I think, Toowoomba all the way up past our region. How he named the Isaac River. His first contact with our people was in these diaries. And that's, like, we've done a lot of research on, on his diaries and we've actually mapped his trail up through our country um, using his diaries. Wow. So these mm. wells, that would have been where um, Aboriginal communities would have kind of lived? Lived and got their fresh water from. Yep. And survived off, survived off the land, basically, where the wells are. They would have, stayed, they would have moved along the wells uh, wherever, whenever they were moving through the country. So they always knew where... With the wells and you guys, you've, and not just your people, people everywhere have, you've managed to get a relationship with the mining companies now so that you can say that this is here. And yeah, so yeah. it's not. Yeah, I think with the, the legislation coming in in 2003, the Aboriginal Culture Heritage Act for Queensland, it's a lot stronger than the federal acts at the moment. And it actually makes the mining companies deal with us regarding cultural heritage and protecting our cultural heritage. Yep, which is um, awesome. And it's important for people to know that that's, you know, we're not just a mining town. It's yeah. a... It, yeah. It's... Moranbar is... Probably since we've got our consent determination in 2016, it has changed a lot over the last five years. Yep. Um, but I even see high-vis shirts around town that have Aboriginal on the, yeah, you know, artwork on the sleeves and stuff. It's yeah. really cool. And it's... It's, it's great now that you can actually, you walk in town and you can see a Barrow de Bonner shirt nearly everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Even little kids right up to the adults, you yeah. just see a Barrow de Bonner shirt everywhere. Like I met with um, Jane Pickles before, Councillor Jane Pickles in Town Square. And there was someone sitting in Town Square with a Barrow de Bonner shirt on. Yeah. <laughs> well, we certainly own multiple ones. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we missed with... out last year. We were really disappointed. I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think with the NADOC events as well, being more in the community, it's also helped bring forward the, the culture in, in that within the town. Yeah, and I think our town's pretty proud of it. Yeah, yeah. you know, like, yeah. like every every town's got history. Yeah, and it's always great to showcase that history to everyone. 
Always great to learn something new. Yes, yes as well. Yep. Basically, we did speak about the first contact, uh, which happened on February 24th, 1845, when Ludwig Leichhardt and his party travelled up the Isaac River and he came to the junction of Sherwell Creek and the Isaac River. There was one of our tribes along the riverbank there, just sitting down, having, having something to eat. And yeah, he startled them and they all disappeared. He wrote. He actually wrote in his his diary that the party heard the noisy jabbering of natives who were unwilling to approach us. So this is the first time that our Baradabana people had contact with white civilization or the early settlers coming through. Wow, that's amazing that it's that you've got that to go off. That yeah, you can. yeah. That it's yeah. documented. So when yeah. was that? Eighteen forty-five. Eighteen forty-five. Yeah, well, February 24, 1845. And then yeah, um, after that, the pastoralists come through and. About March, the rest of the Europeans come through after Leichhardt come through, and that's when everything else would have happened. Yep. After that, the settlement um, and around the region. Um, back then, there was a lot of lot of families that owned a lot of land up here, and the two families that were I don't know a lot of families helped the Aboriginal people back then, but the two of the other families were the Williams family and the Shannon family. The Budby family grew up on Saltbush Park. Uh, the Budby name itself comes from Nottingham Forest, England. Um, there is Budbys living over in England. Oh, there you go. Um, and there is actually a town called Budby as well. Uh-huh. Very um, cool. <laughs> so, yeah, the Budby family um, grew up on Saltbush Park. Uh, for generations, they lived and worked there. And obviously from there, they, they spread out. Another family that looked after the Budbys as well was the Williams family. Crowther Williams, I think he was... The main pastoralist back then, I think he's Alan Williams' father, who owns Riverside Station. So yeah, he he also had a lot of Aboriginal people, our family, working for him. He used to own Homevale, Homevale Station, basically from Homevale right through to Burton and Gunnella Riverside. He owned all that basically wow. before it was split up into the little sub blocks that it is now. Yep. And with that, with the Alan Williams side, my auntie raised him when he was a baby. On Karenia Station. Um, he called her his black angel. Every time he, he sees her, he calls her a black angel. Because he remembers her raising him. Oh, I think it was... She turned 80 last year. So that would have been... She would have been 13 or 14 when she went to work. So that's 50, 64 years ago. Yep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was on Karenia Station. As well. Also, his family have always maintained a close relationship with the Aboriginal people in the in the region. There is a book about the Williams family. It's called A Private Empire. It's written by Stephen Foster. I'll have to get a copy. Yeah, we're readers. Yeah. We'll find yeah. <laughs> that into a collection. We're yeah. getting a four hour FM library happening. Yeah. All these podcasts. <laughs> yeah, because it was. Yeah, as I said, the attitude helped raise Alan Williams back then, and every now and again, she gets to come up on country, and we always make an effort to go go to Riverside Station and see him so they can sit down and have a cup of tea together yep. and yep. reminisce, yep. <laughs> as they do. Yes. <laughs> cup of tea and the biscuits. <laughs> I'm sure they'd have a lot to talk about. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just going to talk about my grandfather, 
George Hanvald Budby. There was an article written about him in the Daily Mercury in 1982. And it's just about his life and he's... Because he, he was a stockman at his own driving business in the 50s and 60s um, around the region. He'd take at minimum about 600, 900 head by himself from the area around here down to Mount Christian, which is near Kamala. That's where they used to load the trains with all the cattle. And they always take the cattle to there to load to head to Rocky down to Lakes Creek. That's a long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, it used to take them um, sixteen days. Sixteen days. Hold yes. Him, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll, I'll read a little bit of the ex, ex, extract from the article. Um, one of our archaeologists done some research for us, mm. and he was just going back visiting the old station owners and talking to them, just finding out a bit of history. And yeah, he came across this story. I think Dad had the old paper clippings because he's still got the old paper clipping at oh, home. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. George began driving in 1946 in partnership with Clary Shaw, operating a driving plant provided to them by Jack Mitchell Moore. And although Clary withdrew from the partnership after a little more than a year, George stuck to the road to make a notable career of it. Most of the contracts were from the stations to the railheads at Mount Christian or Collinsville, where the cattle were loaded into rail wagons to continue their journey to the meatworks at either Lakes Creek or Marinda. George also carried out larger contracts, and stories, some of them, are now legend on the nearby homesteads. For many years, Jack Mitchell organised the delivery of 7,000 or more head a year from various nearby properties to meatworks at Lakes Creek and Marinda. And so efficient was his organisation, and so well did he know his men, that he was never a day out of his timetables. There is no easy going on the roads to Collinsville or Mount Christian. They went in all weathers, facing the heat, the cold, the dust, the mud, the rain, over mile after mile of rough and rocky country. The stock route to Mount Christian followed Wade's Gap down the range, a descent steep and rough enough to test even the most experienced driver. The driver who knew his job cut off the lead and allowed them to find their own way down, which they did by snaking around the mountain and the rest of the mob followed. To try and go straight down resulted in the hooves of the beast burning from the fiction and the mob of crippled cattle at the bottom. The trips usually took about 16 days, 12 going over with the cattle and 4 on the way home. And the good driver needed to know horses and cattle and to understand men as well as being the cook, doctor, vet, blacksmith and even bookkeeper. The heavily laden pack horses carried the meat, flour, sugar and tea, the staple tucker of the driver, as well as all the other necessities for the trip plus tarpaulins, which were often hastily rigged as sudden storms broke out over camp at night. After some of these wild storms, the drovers had to round up the scattered mob the next morning. After all of that, George got four shillings per head when he first commenced driving, from which he paid his men, generally three or four of the three-quarter a day. Most of the mobs for the meatworks numbered 408, a train load, but George also took on bigger contracts and one shifted 900 head, and tow trips to Mount Christian for Dr. Durrimple. He also drove cattle regularly to Blair Athol, Claremont and St. Lawrence, and he also took mob to Marlborough, a three-week job. There were no maps for the drover in George's day, and not too many tracks. When the drover took the job, it was up to him to find the best way to the destination, and then it was then the bushcraft and common sense of a good driver came into their own. They set out with the mob, finding the way by instinct and by asking wherever they could, often sending men on ahead to find the best route and good camps. That's, I can just picture myself going around in circles. <laughs> yeah, you would now, wouldn't you? Yeah. Like back then you just had to basically follow your nose or 
find the best path possible. Mm. And like you said about the cattle making their own way down, you would only learn that lesson once, wouldn't you? And then you yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. That it was a rough life, wasn't it? Hard, it was hard, a hard life. life, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, like he done driving all his life. He was a good horseman as well. Same with my my father and a lot of other my uncles, and the family. Like our family were good good stockmen growing yep. up. Um, they were one of probably one of the best ones around here. We ask all the old station owners. Yeah, yeah. All you do is just mention the name Budby, and they'll tell you who they worked with. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Are you a horseman? No, I'm not. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of, got to dad, they've got to be like, nah, that's it. <laughs> I haven't even ridden a horse, but the kids, my kids, they love horses now. Oh, very good. So it's obviously skipped me and one of the kids. <laughs> well, your dad will be happy. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell a story about my uncle Nebo, Les Budby. He, when he was a young fella, he, he I'm pretty sure he was born... Outside Nebo Pub, back in the 1930s, maybe 20s, 1920s, 1930s. Don't know exact day, um, exact year, but yeah, it was around that time. He was born there, but then he grew up with his grandmother on Lake Elphinstone Station. Uh, one afternoon, they were out uh, on the lake, Lake Elphinstone, and then where Lake Elphinstone Homestead is, there's a mountain range beside it. And they were up there looking for bush food and bush tucker to have some something to eat and just looking around and while they were there me because my uncle was still a baby back then there was a, an eagle flying over the top circling now the only reasons eagles sometimes always fly over the top and circle is they see prey so the the story that's been passed down was that the eagle come down and swooped and grabbed my uncle so me so his grandmother actually grabbed him out of the eagle's claw because the eagle come down swooped grabbed him and on the way up she's grabbed Uncle Les on Nemo and pulled him down and saved him. Wow. So it's uh, one of the stories, that's why he's always said, like Alvin Stone's his. Wow. Yeah, so. That's an amazing story. <laughs> yeah, like, um, not a lot of people, not many people know about that story, like, so I just thought I'd tell it today because it's, it's a fascinating story of why the lake means so much to us and it's got that connection. Also, like, we always done the hunting and fishing along around the Lake Elphinstone as well. And, like, even nowadays we go camping at the lake along with 20,000 other caravans. <laughs> <laughs> we spent a lot of time there and were quite put out when the caravans all come. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Wow, that is a really amazing, amazing story. Wasn't it awesome? Yeah, yeah, yeah. like, it's, it's, yeah, it's... It would have been good to be there and actually see it, but I don't know if I wanted to do that. <laughs> oh, no, you, know? you wanted it quick. You didn't... Yeah, no, like... Grandma was like there. It, yeah, she, the eagle just come down, swoop, and just grabbed him. And she spun around at the exact, the exact moment and yep. grabbed, his, wow. grabbed his leg and saved wow. him. Wow. <laughs> I've heard of them taking, like, small dogs and things like that, but never yeah. babies. Yeah, 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 this one must it's have like been hungry. still alive. Gosh. That's really... Lake Elphinstone, is that's, that's in your area? Yeah, yeah, it's in our shared area with uh, the Witty people. It's basically where the, a lot of the our tribes met. They they would have danced there, had ceremonies there around the lake. Because there is rock art as well around Lake Elphinstone. Along the, as you go along the road, there's all the sandstone rocks on the side mm-hmm. of the road. Um, if you walk up in there, you'll see some rock art. Um, on the bends up top, there's, there's an overhang, there's some rock art in there. Um, there's also rock art in Burton Gorge near the Peabody Camp. Yeah, if you cross over the Isaac River there, just below the dam, 
there's rock art there. And that's what actually um, started everything for us was the, the dam at Burton. Because as my father grew up there and worked in the cattle stations, he knew the rock art was there and knew a lot of other sites that were there as well. And by chance, we went driving out there one day and he seen the dam being constructed, so he kicked up a stick about it. I think the company was white mining back then. So, yeah, he kicked up a fuss and that's how Barada Barna became. First started was, we all knew we were Barada Barna people back then, but it was actually at that point where Dad started everything. It started causing a commotion within the, the mining community, mining companies and everyone else. So, um, yeah, very fortunate that we so did. So if it wasn't for your dad, a lot of that would have been lost. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, a lot of a lot of things around would have been lost if it wasn't for my, my father and uh, the other uncle, Uncle Norman Brown. Um, yeah, we would have lost a lot of things. But, like, even on Broadly, Broadly Station, Broadly Mining List, there's rock art up on there, uh, which is good. Like, the mine actually protected it. They fenced it off. No one could go near it. And I don't even think a lot of the miners knew know it's there. Even on Poitrol mine site, there's a ceremonial site on there, but it's a men's only site. And we've told the mining company, like, this is a men's only site, and no women are allowed to go near it, because when my cousins were doing cultural heritage near it, they, the two girls, they're in the car, they pulled up towards the fence near it. They felt like a flat tire, so they got out and checked that it was a flat tire. They jumped out, and they were about to walk through the fence... And then the hairs on the back of their neck stood up. So they rang my dad, obviously, and asked him, um, is there a site around here that we shouldn't go near? He said, yeah, there's a men's only site. So obviously it was the warning signs (laughs) of the flat tyre. You're not allowed to go any further. Yes. And then the hairs on the back of the neck, you can't go in here. So, yeah, as as they they followed up and done the right protocol, um, so they just stayed in the car and waited for someone to come and change the tyre, which is, like, a lot of people don't, act on their instinct. Mm. And I think I, we've lost that in yeah. our busy world, haven't we, to listen to our instincts. Yeah, and like even the feelings, getting getting a few feelings here and there is just... I mean, for me, it's I'm a very spiritual person, so I always believe on the spirits and act on them as well. It must make you very proud and your family very proud now to see the progress that you're making with the communities out here and being able to preserve other things that otherwise would have been lost. It is. It's, it's great. Um, it's like they know that what we're doing, but they don't actually... They don't, like, we don't get the recognition for it. Like, like, I've been doing this since 1996. So I've been... Like, I wasn't in the forefront with Dad. I was always in the background, helping along whenever I could. And then slowly and surely I sort of just come through probably once we got our consent determination I become a director and then sort of just took over from there but yeah I learned everything and all the stories and that from from dad and all, the, all my other elders that have passed on before Early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, there's a lot of Aboriginal police camps, well, mounted police camps. Basically, the Aboriginal police camps were set up to disperse Aboriginal people back then, our people back then. And basically, by disperse, back then, the meaning was shoot. Yeah. Shoot on site. Is that because the landowners just didn't want them? I think so. Yeah. Like, I 
from back from back then, you'd, they just wanted to run everything, I guess. This is our land, you need to move on, yeah. or we'll shoot you. Yeah, basically. And, that's, and you'll find most of the amount of police were not from the area. Mm. They were from down south, and they were brought up to do it. And one of the, the sites, there was a site near North Creek, it was an Aboriginal police camp. There was one established at Nebo, uh, near Fort Cooper, and there was another one set up at Gunnar Riverside Station on the Isaac River. So basically, where the Isaac River one was set up, it is, it's on the bend of a creek, on the bend of the Isaac River, and it's the high bank that looks down over the, the river. So basically, they would have sat up there, and now people would have come down to the river, had something to drink, sit around the river, and then they would have just target shot them. And that's yeah. why those pastoralists that you were talking about earlier were so important, because obviously your they, people felt like they were safe places to go. They were, yeah, and they protected a lot of the families. Like, I know there was, that's only the two names I mentioned, the Shannon and the Williams family, but there's a lot more within the region that done that. Yeah. And I think that's why, because there wasn't the whole lot of massacres back then in the Randall area. There still was, mm. we're not denying that. And with our cultural awareness training that we run with the mines, we go and in depth with the, the massacres because you, you need to know the full history to get a better understanding. That's right, yeah. Can't just pretend it didn't happen. No, no. And it did happen. There's no, no two ways about it. Yeah. There's uh, a great book, another book, <laughs> which you've probably already read, Darky and You. Yes, I love that book. Oh, that blew mm. me away. But even that other book that we've got on um, the Horror Highway, how they oh, talk yeah. about the land being... Yeah, just the, the Marlborough stretch, you know. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It talks about that there was um, massacres there, there and that it's always just had a bad feeling after that. I, I don't like then, driving that stretch. Yeah, yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Even in June, like, we, when we, we done a lot of cultural heritage down in Marlborough in the late 90s, and we'd run, do runs up to Nebo at night time. Didn't like it. Yeah. Like, it was just, nah, went up to Nebo, stayed at Nebo, and then drove back the next morning. It's just, yeah, there's something about that road. Yes, there definitely is. <laughs> so do you think um, there's a lot of, you know, things that are darking me that you guys didn't know? I guess there is, yeah. Yeah, like, a lot of, like, in the, the cultivation and all that that, we, that Bruce talks about, I didn't know that growing up because we weren't actually taught it. Yeah, and no. it, was, it wasn't actually just passed down, but... And I'm a lot of his evidence comes from diaries and yeah, that, that sort was of the thing, first settlers. Yeah, that's yeah. what I was, when you were talking about Leichhardt, it's amazing that stuff that was noted wasn't really noted. They wrote it down, but no one really read it or really understood it, I guess, yeah. until recently where they've gone, oh, yeah. Yeah, like it's, <laughs> they just skim over it and sort of on it. and Doesn't play into doesn't the narrative. Play. Yeah. Yeah, they're looking for something specific, but they don't actually cover it. Yeah, that's yeah. it. My my favorite, not my favorite, but one of my favorite parts of Dark Emu was when they talked about how Aboriginal people would have had crops, but mm. instead of fences, what they would do would be plant the native animals' favorite food around their crop, so that they would eat that food and leave their leave food alone. Like, yeah. That is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and like even even like with the the tools, the stone artifacts, like creating the right edge back then. To know how, how it cuts, it's like They weren't taught that. They, they worked it out themselves how to get that fine, the correct edge. Even when skinning animals, using the stone to skin an animal, like having the correct edge to actually skin it without cutting the meat. It's, yeah. It is amazing. And that another thing that, which they kind of touched on in that book, but which we have seen by looking at a few other museums around around the area over at Clermont and 
Pella and even over at Nebo, but there's artifacts, I suppose, kind of everywhere. When there was these certain rocks in, I can't remember which museum it was, but I can remember looking at them and thinking, I've seen looks those like... rocks before yeah. and just thought it was a rock, but mm. there's the shape to it that it isn't. It was a tool. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, there's stuff literally everywhere out here that, yeah, yeah can, is evidence that... Yeah, you can basically walk down the Isaac River and there'll be a site along the Isaac River. You wouldn't even know it's an Aboriginal cultural heritage site. You just think it's rocks. And that's like, that's the things that we're teaching with, through all our cultural awareness training to the mine sites. And even with the NAIDOC events that we hold through the schools, we always bring in our cultural heritage guys to actually show the kids the artefacts. So that if they're walking around the bush and they actually stumble across something, they know what it is. And they say, ah, so that's what it is. It's not just a cool rock. It's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's a tool. <laughs> I probably have some at home. My daughter collects rocks everywhere we go. <laughs> but, we also collect rocks. Yeah, yeah. I think with, um, even with us, like, we'll, we'll travel in Australia. And being an Aboriginal person, it's I always tell my kids, don't collect the rocks. Because you don't know, they could be tools or anything. So wherever we go somewhere, they always ask, can we take these rocks? No, you cannot take the rocks. It doesn't belong to us. But when we come on country, they grab rocks. Yeah, you're right. You can take that one. Because I know where it's from and, yeah. and that. And we were down, we were down in Tasmania doing the Tekine Track, I think it's called, or Trail. And there was an Aboriginal site where we had to walk to. And there wasn't much information about it, but drove in to the spot where we pulled the car, pulled up in the car, and it was a beach area. And we had to walk along the beach and walk around these rocks, and I think the site was on the beach beside the, behind the rocks. So as we started walking towards it, the wind blew up. Like, like it wasn't windy when we left the car, but the wind actually blew up. The sand, like a little sandstorm was coming. So we went halfway, it's like, nah, we got to turn around and go back. As soon as we turned around and started walking back, everything. <laughs> so for me thinking that, I think it was a females only site. Yeah. yeah. And it was telling us, or telling me not to go any further. So once we realised that, we back at the car, I was like, oh, that's probably why. <laughs> but it didn't actually say it was a female site or anything on the sign. Or on the information that we were given. Just a feeling. Oh, that's Just amazing. a feeling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All the stories we heard that I've heard from, as, as I said before, Nebo's was one of the first towns established within the region early on. And there was a camp across the road from the Nebo pub where you could actually, from what I've read you could, and the stories that were told, People could sit on the deck of the pub and look over the river and they'd see the Aboriginal camp and a grave, gravesite. Okay. Oh, yeah. But it actually hasn't been recorded correctly yet, so it's one of the other things we've got to look at um, doing. And also with the removals that happened at Nebo Creek of the Brown family. Oh, there was four kids taken. Daisy, May, Norman, Albert and Kitchener. They were taken from the banks of Nebo Creek in 1908. Wow. Um, they were walked, handcuffed, um, down to Sherberg, or Baramba back then. So that's probably about a thousand k's from here. Wow. wow. See, I, that's not a history I've ever heard. <laughs> no. Holy yeah. holy. They don't promote yeah. that in Nebo. No. no. <laughs> well, there's a park on the bank of Nebo Creek. Okay. Yeah. They all your... faded, those plaques, haven't they? Because yeah. we were looking yeah. at them the other day. They really need to be updated. Updated, oh. yeah. Because yeah, yeah. um, oh, back yeah. in 2008, we brought old Kitchener home. He was buried down in Kingaroy. Yeah. He was one of the kids taken back then. So we actually brought him home to country, and he's buried in Nebo Cemetery now. Oh, 
Oh, and there was a big, wow. big of, um, I think it was a three-day festival that weekend on about it. Yeah, I think it's on, it might be on either NITV or SBS, Bring a Kitchen at Home. And so they took them down there to an orphanage? Or? No, it was a mission. Basically a mission back then was where they've taken all the Aboriginal people. Yep, and why only those four kids are the only ones they... I think they were the only ones that were there on the bank by themselves. But the funny thing about that is my great-grandfather, he was the eldest out of them kids, but he was on a mail run delivering the mail with the postman. So his younger brothers and sisters were taken. How heartbreaking to come home and they're gone. And probably because you never would have known what happened to them for a long time. No, no. Wow. Yeah, so... You found them all eventually? Yes. Yeah, yeah they all ended up on Sherbrooke or Berimba back then. Their last names back then would have been Barker. As soon as they arrived onto the, the mission, the person in charge said, oh, look at these little brown kids. Last name, Brown. Well. Because yeah. oh. back then we didn't have last names or anything. It's no. just, it's just your last name's Brown now. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so... Like that's part of the style of generation and all mm. that that's happened around here. And, but like, and, and again, that's something that I know about that, but yeah. I didn't know that there was a story so close to home about yeah. that. So, wow. Yeah, and like there's a lot of like this. This is a lot of stuff that we talk about and educate a lot of the, the mining companies with when we do our awareness training, which is very important. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose if the Aboriginal camp was on that side of the creek, is that the side that floods? Yes, because the the pubs yeah. on the high side. Yeah, pubs on the high side and yeah. Aboriginal cameras on the low side. So it would be hard to find to actually find it, yeah. It's, it's also hard because a lot of the old people back then remember it as well. It's from the Nebo area. Okay. And it's hard to actually sit down and talk to them because I think the last person that we spoke to, she was 94. Yeah. And that was maybe five, six years ago. Yeah, so you're losing those people that were actually yeah. alive when it happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And these were the, the white people that were actually yeah. still alive and and they were telling, telling the stories to us about it. Wow. Any wonder Nebo didn't want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> we might dig up some dirt. Apparently in the Nebo Museum, there's these two, two stones in there called Devil's Marbles. Yeah, I've never seen them, and I don't want to see them, just from the name. But Ooh, apparently they're in Nebo, Nebo Museum somewhere. Oh, now we need to go back. There's only the creepy doll. Like, look at that yeah, doll. there is a creepy doll in there. Oh, is there? I haven't <laughs> yeah. been in there in yet. In Germany so. or something. Like, oh, I don't know what that is. And but so yeah. what are the significance of those? I don't know, to tell you the truth, because I think they may be from the Medicine Man back then. The Gadachi men. So they shouldn't be in the museum. No, so they're very they're probably very spiritual and they've That explains a lot about that museum. And um if I think maybe if you touch on yeah, I don't know, I don't know the story, the full oh. story, but just um I wouldn't be touching them. I'd just look at them and say, Yeah, you can have them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, touch them or remove them. You can return them from whence you found them. <laughs> yeah. yeah, oh wow. also a lot of stories around our, our country and one of the stories is about UNG Waterhole. UNG Waterhole is down on the Carfax to Middlemount Road, Carfax Maydowns Road, uh, where the Isaac River runs through. And basically it's a spot in the river where 
our people decided not to drink the water from or fish or anything in that part of the river because from the story that's been passed down, the cattle get down to the river to that spot, have a drink, disappear. Yuanji um, in our language means devil. So our people called it the devil waterhole. Um, so the story passed down is that we never stop at that waterhole. We never go near the waterhole. We never drink water from the waterhole or swim from the waterhole or fish in the waterhole because of the, the meaning of it. Wow. And when we were telling this story one day to the kids in Middlemount, one of the kids said, oh, that's my property. Yeah, I know where that is. Like, so I was like, oh, okay. And so it was, it was something they sort of knew. The kid in the family knew about it, but they didn't actually know the full meaning of it. Yeah. And it was like just great that they just tell her about it. And she goes, oh, that's probably, that's why there's no animals around it. Wow. So it's, it's just, Still, yeah. It's just that story just clicking, clicking, like, makes everything click. Yeah. And gives them a better understanding too that there is the spirit still there in that water hole. The new, the new gym here across the road, I think it used to be the cinema. Mm-hmm. Yeah, apparently, well, from last year in Ralph and Adoc, um, they were having troubles with spirit, a spirit in there. So the story goes, it might have been the old, no, the old owner that passed away in there. And then one of our other directors was going to the gym, I think it was about 11 o'clock at night, and he could feel someone around him in the gym and that, and the spirit actually showed himself to one of our directors. And so the next night, um, he said, he asked me, because I do all the smoking ceremonies within, within our area. He said, oh, I'd good job to smoke the gym. I said, yes, yeah, no I can do that. So we went to the gym that night, the next night, probably about 10 o'clock, where the gym is... Upstairs, where the old projector room is, is the old it's the yoga studio now. Yeah, yeah. So we walked up into there. I said, "Oh, we'll probably start. Up. We'll walk around first and see if we can feel him." So the first place we walked was into the that yoga room. So I walked in the room. Bam! He was the hair in the back of my neck stood up, cold shiver in spine. Yeah, he's in here because I could actually I could feel him in there. So we started the smoking ceremony there, and then smoked the whole gym. We started in there, walked around in there, walked down the stairs, went through reception and then into the main gym area and then back out. And then once we finished, I made sure that everyone, because I had two other directors there as well, that we smoke ourselves to get rid of the spirit so the spirit doesn't follow us. So we done that and then it was all good and then I think we asked the gym, what about two weeks later, if they felt him or seen him or anything? I said no. Wow. So, so what does the smoking ceremony do? It just helps them see. It just helps them move on. Yeah. Because um, when, when I'm usually doing a smoking ceremony, I always say a few words to myself when I'm doing it just to, to get praise from, from my elders and ancestors that are passed before me. Yeah. And to bless me while I do it and protect to show me. show them the way. Yeah. Yeah. And this helped um, get rid of the old fellow out of the gym, which is a good thing. You need to go to Dysart. <laughs> to the Jolly Collier. Yes. Yeah, room... <laughs> seven. Seven? Yep. Seven. 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 Yes. Room seven at uh, Jolly Collier. Room eight at Middlemount in the pub there. It's haunted. It's the pubs. Yep. Just... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And room eight at the Nugget. You know, I've heard someone say something There's about the Nugget. There's a Nugget ghost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One of our, it's either seven or eight at the Nugget. One of our other directors was staying in the room there. He couldn't sleep. Wow. In the room, yeah. He just 
about something, didn't they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we know about the, the jolly one, jolly polia. <laughs> but so your, your smoking ceremonies that you do, that's also like a, like a cleansing? Event? It is, it is. It's a cleansing. Um, we usually perform the smoking ceremony at the, at the Welcome to Countries and that for official events. It also blesses, blesses the event and the people in it. Yep. Like when, we, when they reopened the Moorumbah Miners Memorial. That was beautiful. I'd done the welcome and the smoking ceremony in that one, but with the different smoking ceremonies, we use different leaves. Okay. Um, for the normal smoking ceremonies, I use Brigolo. Um, and then for like the Moorumbah Miners one, which was a healing event, I use the gum tree. Wow. The eucalypt uh, actually is a healing, is a healing smoke for everyone. So that's it's still such a massive connection to country, to to nature, and mm. yeah, yeah, and that's what we are. We are connected to nature and everything around us, mm. and we're always using our natural, trying to use as much as natural stuff as we can when we do our ceremonies and that. And you get to teach this now to your kids and, and, and my kids, yeah. And then, like we do with the Nadok events, we do Moorumbah, Dysart, Middlemount, and we just. Yeah, one day at each town and go through the schools and give them a bit of history and teach them a bit of culture. And now with the Brightabana language, a lady came out, she wasn't Brightabana, she was from Mackay, she came out to the library. There was some workshop I did there anyway and they had, I think it was a very hungry caterpillar, but it was written in... The movie language? Yes, it was amazing. And I was talking to her and she was saying that there's such Wasn't a big Deb, gap. Deb Nuttall? I think it was, actually. Deb, yep. <laughs> oh, thank God. But yeah, she said that there's, you know, because some languages are lost. Yep. So, and not, probably not with you guys, because do you know, like, do you, no, you don't either. A lot of our language is lost. So um, she said you don't even, like, you know, you know the words, but she's like, we will never really know if we're pronouncing them correctly mm. or because the, it's just gone. Yeah. I just, that's a hard it's, thing to get your head That's on. one of the big things that we're trying to redo at the moment is... Speaking of books, we are creating a book. Excellent. <laughs> um, for our for our kids to start off with, and then we'll bring it into the, the wider community. Um, it's it's, it's going to be a story about an old man and a young boy going around country. Yep. Um, we've sort of written the basics of it, and we're just in the process now of finalising that, getting the artist in. We've got some funding off Anglo, Anglo Coal. Yep. Um, they're going to provide some funding for us to get it printed for our people. I think we're looking at around 600 copies to start with and then more from there once we do our people first, all our kids. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then we'll bring it into the communities. It's amazing. It's really cool. Mm. But, yeah, what a crazy thing to have to start from scratch is to think, yeah, yeah there language. is There is it's... none. Because when our people were taken to the missions, you weren't allowed to speak your language or practice culture. If you'd done that, you were, you were banished. You were put in, put in jail, basically. Yeah. Mm. So it got forgotten. Yeah, so it didn't get passed down. Per generation, as it, as it done back 40,000, 50,000 years ago, it was passed down. And once they got dispersed and removed, it didn't get passed down anymore. That's right. Well, like you said, you've got people everywhere. Like yeah. all over. All over Australia. Yeah. Well, probably all over the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that is, that's a hard thing to yeah to build again it's amazing yeah. but it's a really great thing that you can yeah yeah, yeah that's and there's there's bits and pieces out there and it's, it's actually trying to get a linguist in to get the right pronunciations mm. the hardest 
characters. I know some of the words, I don't pronounce it right, but I just go with it. <laughs> Said with the right heart. So. Yes, yeah, that's it. And is there somewhere in Mackay, does Baratabana have somewhere you can go if you wanted to do a little bit of research or find out more or if you have, if you think you've got a, you know, a historical link to local Aboriginal community you could research? No, Lord, most of our stuff is in state libraries. Yep. Like and I think else. the Mackay Library is really good. Yeah. We haven't actually there. done any research on the Mackay. It's always been the Brisbane, John Oxley and the state libraries. We've always done a research from. And you are still researching. We are. Yep. Yeah. We're not satisfied with everything we've got. We want to know everything. Yeah. And show show everything as well to the communities that we that we're in. Yeah, we were talking off air about potentially a cultural centre here in Murrumba yeah. at some point. That'd be good. Super exciting. It would yeah. be fantastic. Yeah. And like other little things that we're doing as well on the tourism side, we're looking at on um, one of the mine sites we've got a, a education centre. Um, we're looking to expand that to bring in all the kids and the mining and the community in through it so that they learn a bit more about our culture, specifically our culture and our Aboriginal culture. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a work in progress, so hopefully in the next... And like you've shown us today, it there's such a like an interweaving of your culture and our culture when they you know came together and became you know, horsemen and worked alongside them. Yeah, there's yeah, a, a long history. Like Even though there's a lot of dark history which people don't want to talk about, but you have to talk about it to understand it. Yeah, yeah. that's right. We need to learn from what, yeah, what happened in the past. Right. Yeah, I think for me, and everyone talks about reconciliation, for me it's you need to know your past and understand it before you can move forward. And that's, that's what I always say whenever people talk about reconciliation. You need to know your history and understand it and talk about the massacres because it did happen. There's no hiding it. It did happen. And then, yeah, once you, once you can deal with that and move forward together after Well, you have just heard our latest podcast, Traditional Lands. Thank you to all our listeners for supporting our podcast and listening in every month, even though we have had a little bit of a break. We are back on a roll. We will be putting a podcast out every month. Thank you to the Community Broadcasting Foundation for funding us. And thank you to Graham for coming in and just giving us so much amazing knowledge, just stuff that we just could never find in a book. Absolutely. And you know that this is our 10th episode. Oh, 10 episodes. It is. It is. <laughs> so that's very exciting. And now our next episode will be number one of our new season. Okay. So we're going 10 TED podcasts in a season. We're very official now. <laughs> we've got our first season under our belt. But we're kicking it off by looking into the world of psychics. So we've been chatting with a few different people with uh, otherworldly skills and finding out what that must be like. It's been an interesting ride as well. Hey, it's hard to sleep at night now. <laughs> <laughs> know too much. <laughs> They're everywhere. <laughs>